Welcome. You are listening to Aftersight. This recording is intended solely for individuals who are blind or have low vision. Thank you for joining us for Opera News. My name is Keith. The following articles are from the February 2024 Opera with Opera News magazine, and will begin by continuing the review of Tosca at Dallas Opera. I've heard Vesey d'Arte more mellifluously sung, but hardly more emotionally. At the end, because of back concerns, Planca took no plunge off the parapet, just standing there as the lights went out. Surely a better resolution could have been devised. A big draw was to be Joseph Kalea in his Dallas Opera debut as Cavaradossi. He fell ill early in the week, though, so Jonathan Burton was brought in for the final dress rehearsal and opening. Happily, Burton delivered fiery vocalism to match Planca's, his singing and theatrical ardor always fitting the moment. Kalea sang the next two performances, reportedly with some upper register fraying. Burton again took over for the last evening. Ideally, Scarpia will exude malevolence from his very first appearance. Until Act Two, Gihun Kim came off as an only mildly sinister functionary, but he was more persuasively oily as he tried to seduce Tosca, and he rose to quite a fury. His finely honed baritone was certainly imposing, delivering formidable power when needed. Andrew Potter was aptly scruffy as Angelotti, with just enough burr on the voice. Dale Travis was the endearing sacristan, comic enough without overdoing it, with a beautifully seasoned bass baritone. Even the smaller roles were well sung. Thomas Chalufo as Spoleto, Eric Earl Larson as Schiarone, Sripal Medera Medla as the shepherd boy. Following the retirement of the longtime chorus director Alexander Rom, the company is trying out potential successors. With George Gregory Hobbs in charge this time, the chorus made stirring sounds in the Te Deum, joined by young singers from the Greater Dallas Choral Society for Children and Youth. But intonation soured in the offstage cantata outside Scarpia's office. With a sure sense of timing and musical interactions, the conductor Emmanuel Villon made the orchestra as vivid a dramatic presence as anyone on stage. The tricky cello ensemble introducing E Luciovan Loistele wasn't reliably tuned, but the horns played thrillingly, and the clarinetist Danny Goldman spun out hauntingly lovely solos by Scott Cantrell. Los Angeles Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo came to California for the first time in 1930. They arrived in San Francisco, where Rivera was commissioned to paint the epic mural Allegory of California, and stayed for 18 months. Kahlo, who had started painting only a few years earlier, participated in her first show during that trip. Almost 100 years later, the famous couple has returned to California, this time as characters, in a new opera by the composer Gabriela Lena Frank. El Ultimo Sueño de Frida y Diego has barnstormed the state's three major opera houses in only 13 months, receiving its premiere in October 2022 in San Diego, followed by a summer stint in San Francisco. The run at Los Angeles Opera, 
seen at the final performance on December 9th, was noteworthy because of two key additions. Much of what worked before in San Diego was retained at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, Lorena Maza's colorful production, Alfredo Daza's mournful but vibrant portrayal of Diego, and Kimon W. Murrah's ethereal turn as a Greta Garbo impersonator. Daniela Mack took on the role of Frida in San Francisco and proved a more austere, if still assured, presence here. For L.A. opera-goers, the main addition was the second appearance in the Chandler Pit of the company's new Colombian resident conductor, Lina Gonzalez Granados. In her first time conducting it, she gave Frank's score even more shape and shimmer than it had at its premiere. The other addition was the soprano, Anna Maria Martinez, in the role of Katrina, the fictional character who governs the underworld. Martinez's star presence gave Katrina's scenes a bit of extra fizz. She now seems more like the MC of the Realismo Magico pageant that unfolds. But more importantly, the Puerto Rican-born soprano made the Spanish-language songs really come to life. Martinez has sung mostly in Italian in her many appearances at L.A. Opera over the years, but both Nilo Cruz's libretto and Frank's music benefited from her fluency and style. The California audience's response to the production's cinematic scenarios and eclectic soundscapes suggests that El Ultimo Sueño de Frida y Diego is but the first of the many operatic dreams of Cruz and Frank. By James E. Taylor New York The return of Unbalo and Mascara to the Metropolitan Opera, seen on November 8th, brought with it the company's most individualistic, even quirky, Verity production. David Alden's staging, last seen in 2015. The oddities begin at the outset, with the image of a painting depicting the fall of Icarus, a heavy-handed display of symbolism in alluding, one surmises, to the proclivity of Verdi's hero, the Swedish king Gustav III, to flirt with danger, whether in his love life or in ignoring a conspiratorial threat. Verdi may be hinting at this with the light-hearted tone of the music characterizing the monarch's court. But once again, Alden overdoes it by outfitting choristers with canes and top hats, reminiscent of a song-and-dance routine, in the process crossing the line into mockery. Paul Steinberg's sets have little eye appeal until the final scene, when, with the artful use of mirrors, they take on a mysterious grandeur. The current cast, while adequate, will not erase memories of the previous revival, which boasted Sandra Radvanovsky, Piotr Bekshawa, and Dmitry Vorostovsky. Elena Stikina, originally announced as Amelia, had to cancel on account of her pregnancy, and was replaced by Angela Mead, whose substantial voice sounded in good shape and seemed to benefit from the acoustical properties of the attic-like set for the scene in the Ankerstrom home, which facilitated a moving... Moro ma prima in grazia. Charles Castronovo conveyed Gustavo's ebullience and irrepressible spirit in a handsomely sung performance. Quinn Kelsey's big, burly baritone may not be to everyone's taste, but his singing is invariably well-conceived and deeply felt, and was so here as Ankarstrom. 
The rising soprano Liv Redpath was an arresting, vivacious Oscar, but for this role, a bit more vocal ping would have been welcome. Olesia Petrova contributed a potent, richly sung Ulrika. Carlo Rizzi conducted with style and conviction. For its fall production, Juilliard Opera turned to John Musto's captivating Later the Same Evening, with a libretto by Mark Campbell, a work that originated in 2007 as a joint production of the University of Maryland and the National Gallery of Art in Washington, and was soon taken up by the Manhattan School of Music. With this pedigree, you might think the piece would be especially suitable for music schools, but any new opera, and there are plenty of them currently, would do well to have half the wit or grasp of human nature possessed by this 75-minute work, rooted in five paintings by Edward Hopper. Glimmergloss presented the first professional staging in 2011, and it deserves others. Juilliard staging at the Peter J. Sharp Theater, November 12th, comes on the heels of the Whitney Museum of American Arts Encyclopedic Hopper Exhibition last year, but his popularity is perennial. In re-encountering the opera, I was especially struck by how effectively the essential loneliness of Hopper's figures comes across within a fundamentally comic milieu. The opera's tight construction is also a plus. It develops from the imagined predicaments of three women, each the subject of an initial scene. Elaine, depicted in Room in New York, who is emotionally detached from her husband, Gus. Estelle, hotel window, a well-off widow waiting for someone. And Ruth, hotel room, a young dancer who has given up on New York. Their imagined stories, which generate seven more characters, converge at a Broadway musical, Two on the Isle, whose tunes are cleverly prefigured. A pulsating orchestral figure in 5-8 time also adds unity. The inventive score, realized here by the Juilliard Orchestra, 36 strong and skillfully conducted by Joseph Colinari, as two fine ensembles and an amusing orchestral interlude embodying the musical, before ending in an automat, automat, where Thelma and Usher, Lizzie Hayes, and Ruth's would-be fiancé, Joe, Trevor Holmschild Roca, may or may not have initiated a romance. Alison Moritz's daring, and for me successful, decision not to include representations of the paintings in her production heightened a sense of immediacy. The handsome program book reproduced all five in color. Lawrence E. Moten III's set design included five blackened pictures and otherwise smartly evoked the 1930s, as did Olivera Gajik's costumes. Moritz's one mistake was to follow the current cliché of including doubles for certain characters, which cluttered the action. Jasmine Saunders, Elaine, Lucy Joy Altus, Estelle, and Gemma Na, Ruth, launched the proceedings with fine singing in their respective initial scenes, yet all the singers deserve mention, including Jared Verline, Gus, Samuel Rosner, Sheldon, Jasmine Ward, Rose, and Song Hee Lee, Valentina. Minky Hong made a mark as Estelle's unlikely suitor, Ronaldo, a flamboyant Portuguese piano salesman, 
and Colin Akins stood out as Jimmy, a teacher from Lynchburg, Virginia, whose wide-eyed appreciation of New York on his first trip there neatly counterbalanced Ruth's decision to abandon the city. By George Loomis New York Otto Schenk in Gunther Schneider Simpson's production of Tannhäuser was first seen at the Metropolitan Opera in late 1977. Its even older predecessor production, John Dexter's Dialogues of the Carmelites, arrived ten months earlier, yet remains a fresh and contemporary-looking staple of the repertory. Schenk and Schneider Simpson, encouraged by James Levine, took a different tack with Tannhäuser. He created a determinedly old-fashioned staging, looking more like the Victor book of the opera from earlier in the 20th century than historical illustrations and photographs from the even more distant past. But it satisfied those who resisted and still resist what they see as directorial overreaching. Their Tannhäuser works better than their subsequent, truly tacky, long-since-retired ring. The Tannhäuser decor last seen in 2015, had been cleaned and otherwise spiffed up and looked about as good as it can. Stephen Pickover's revival direction made good sense, especially with his practiced cast. The first night on November 30th had been disrupted in Act Two by environmental protesters, prompting a few pauses and delaying the final curtain to around midnight. But on December 3rd all proceeded smoothly. By 1977, the Met had reverted to its preferred Paris version, or more precisely to Wagner's final tinkering for Vienna in 1875, with the overture proceeding directly into the ballet. One can dispute that highly chromatic extended ballet and Wagner's other latter-day revisions. To this taste, the ballet remains tedious. But the blend of earlier and later Wagnerian styles has its appeal, too especially with a good conductor and a fine cast. This one was not golden age, maybe, but as good as it gets nowadays. The tireless Andreas Schager was a strong Tannhäuser, not as intense as Vingassen, nor as Tentorian as Melchior, but intelligent and effective. The biggest news of the night was Christian Gerhacher in his Met debut as Wolfram, more assertive than some and fully audible, despite his renown as a leader-singer, when he chose to sing out. Completing the male side of the ledger, George Zeppenfeld made a strong Hermann and the young towering Lebeau, a particularly commanding Bitterolf. Elsa Vandenhaver was the Elizabeth, perhaps not as heart-rending as some, but still a fine, bright soprano. Ekaterina Gubanova was the powerful Venus, Good enough that even those who regretted her extended music in this version could hardly mind. Maureen McKay sang the young shepherd sweetly. Donald Runnicles is a seasoned Wagnerian. Even if some of his Act One tempos seemed to drag, he propelled the rest of the score confidently, and the long Act Two choral ensemble cohered beautifully. The Manhattan School of Music Graduate Opera Theater has put on some effective accounts of operas, preferably heard with fully mature singers. But the young cast of the four-performance run of Britain's A Midsummer Night's Dream in November at Nydorf Karpati Hall looked a little callow. 
I saw the first of the two casts, November 18th. Although many of the singers remain constant throughout, the only doublings coming with the four Athenian lovers, Titania and Bottom. Haolun Zhang was the sure Oberon, with Sophia Gach Karuana as Titania, Johannes Linnebal as Puck, Madison Marie Fitzpatrick, a sweet-voiced Helena, and Benjamin R. Sokol, an enthusiastic Bottom. The veteran George Manahan conducted Shirley. John de los Santos was the stage director. Abby Wicker did the rudimentary sets. Ashley Solomon's costumes looked nicely fanciful for the fairy characters and contemporary for the humans, which seemed a little jarring. The changeling was a log, shades of the log lady from Twin Peaks. All well and good, but I still prefer grown-ups and probably the play with Mendelssohn's magical music. By John Rockwell. Philadelphia. With the 1740 Milton-inspired pastoral ode, L'Allegro, Il Penseroso ed Il Moderato, Curtis Opera Theatre continued its fine track record with Handel Stage Works to the benefit of its students as well as the Philadelphia audience. In my years frequenting COT, it has presented Alcina, Apollo e Daphne, Ariodante, and Rinaldo, as well as Lormindo. By contrast, the competition across town, the Academy of Vocal Arts, last staged a Handel work in 1986, depriving its students of a key segment of today's operatic fair. At any rate, a capacity audience turned up on November 12th at the Philadelphia Film Center, the former Harold Prince Theater, for a musically pleasing, if dramatically somewhat muted, performance. Jazz Raider Schieber's direction was thoughtful, though not completely transcending the piece's rather static nature. Judy Galen's sets mutated usefully from study table to feasting table to formal gardens, all plausible 18th-century tropes, and Connie Yun's Flemish painting-inspired lighting was handsome if rather doer. Ryder Schieber himself costumed the performers, starting with two contrasted looks, sober garments for the contemplative Penseroso Posse and restoration theatrical artifice, including some distorting facial makeup, for the Allegro adherents. The makeup disappeared before the second section, and throughout the Milton-based portions of the work, members of each camp sampled prop and costume elements of the other faction, illustrating an intellectual grasp of how Handel, and his librettist James Harris, deliberately mixed sentiments. For the Moderato final segment, headed by Charles Jennings, the young cast emerged in the kind of improbably bright-hued contemporary clothes we used to see regularly inflicted on French Baroque choruses a few decades ago. Some vitalizing choreography by Isaac Martin Lerner added much-needed levity and grace. The student singers and instrumentalists clearly benefited from Nicholas McGagan's experienced and generally crisp leadership in the pit. The two cellists and the organ and celesta player particularly shown. The flautist, Xiaoshi Annie Li, deserved her own bow for her work in Sweet Bird, partnering the accomplished soprano Julia Tatkino, a delight to hear throughout. 
She, if not her rather technically precarious tenor partner, aced her share of the sublime concluding as steals the morn. All the singers, even those announced as indisposed, brought some fine qualities to their solos, and the choral ensembles bespoke fresh timbres and good musicianship. Especially praiseworthy work came from the bright, stylish soprano Sarah Fleiss, the mezzo Katie Trigg, showing excellent placement and fine textual delivery, Hongrui Ren, a liquid-toned tenor with good agility, and Evan Gray, a bass baritone with alert vocal and scenic presence plus admirable precision of pitch. By David Shenkold. San Diego. There is nothing wrong with a charming Christmas cancionita. Javier Martinez's El Milagro del Recuerdo, The Miracle of Remembering, is a short operetta, first seen at Houston Grand Opera in 2019, then Arizona Opera in 2021, prior to its arrival this season at San Diego Opera, that takes place on Christmas Eve, 1962. The setting is northern Mexico, as is the musical idiom, made clear by the mariachi trio singing and strumming their guitars as the curtain rose at the San Diego Civic Theater, December 3rd. This onstage bando was present throughout much of the piece, which tells the story of Braceros, Mexican men who crossed the border to live and work in America. Leonard Folia's libretto effectively dramatizes how these working-class men and the families they leave behind struggle with making sacrifices for their children when they all come together at Christmas. Martinez's score is light and tuneful, but rarely resembles opera. The main theme, this holy memory, seems tailored more for a Bocelli-type pop crooner than opera singers. Remember the butterflies on the hill, comes closest to a bona fide aria, and the mezzo Guadalupe Paz, who shown here as Frida in last season's premiere of the Spanish-language opera El Ultimo Sueño de Frida y Diego, succeeded by making it feel almost Puccini-esque. Besides Paz, another original Frida cast member, Felipe Pardo, whose liquid tenor made an impression in the small role of the town priest, was the only other voice one longed to hear in a more operatic setting. Most of the other singers were miked, which only accentuated the West End musical feel of the songs, as did the small 15-piece pit band conducted by James Lowe. Even if its score makes Amal and the Night Visitors seem Wagnerian in comparison, El Milagro is an enjoyable enough holiday entertainment, with just the right mix of Dickensian social gravitas which Folia's production served up as a healthy mix of Ponto and Zarzuela. It would have fitted nicely in San Diego's smaller Balboa Theater, but that venue's detour series seems to have been scrapped along with the most recent staging scheduled at the venue, The Falling and the Rising, which was canceled in April, a month before its opening night. Also concerning is the company opening its main stage season in December rather than October, with his slender offering in a hall far too big for it. For a top ticket of $205, El Milagro, paired with Amal, or a Verismo one actor, might have seemed like a gift. Alone, at 80 minutes, it felt like Scrooge was working the box office. 
All this as SDO is cutting back on the number of upcoming operas and performances, suggesting a season stocking filled with more coal than candy. The audience applauded El Milagro on the stage, but a back-office Christmas miracle may be what Southern California opera-growers should be rooting for, by James C. Taylor. Thank you for joining us for Opera News. My name is Keith. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aftersight.org or by calling 303-786-7777.